why Zelle fraud is rampant, and analyzing the newly proposed EU-US data flow agreement. These stories and more on this week's ISMG Security Report. Hi, I'm Anna Delaney. Last week, U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren's office said its investigation into Zelle, the peer-to-peer payments app, showed that fraud and theft are not only rampant, but getting worse. Furthermore, it claims that banks are not refunding the majority of people who've been defrauded and may be breaking the law. I asked former CISO of PNC Bank, David Polino, for his thoughts on the matter. Yeah, well, as a uh, former banker myself, you know, I, I definitely see both sides of the equation. What you have is you have some of these more traditional payment mechanisms like PayPal, Venmo, Cash App that are built on other products. They're built on ACH. They're built on the the card infrastructure. And to a certain extent, also checking products as well. Those products have a well-established operating rules that have factored in fraud as part of you know, the arrangements. And because normally you're only seeing one side of the transaction, you're either seeing the, you know, the, the sender, the maker, the receiver, or, you know, or the, or the other side, there's some ways to be able to enforce good behavior by chargebacks or unauthorized transfers, you know, those, those types of things are, you know, turn, return to maker uh, on the check side. So um, what we're, what we're seeing here really is um, this new product that did not factor fraud into its overall revenue model. It was all about cost um, avoidance. And as a result, um, they tried to make the rules but in the, in the product in such a way that they wouldn't see fraud. It's a send-only mechanism. It's not a receive mechanism. You can't request it, but you know it has to be pushed out by the, the account owner or whoever's in control of the device that's the authenticator for that particular account. And there hasn't been a good mechanism for, for charging back. So the, the one rule that kind of governs this uh, approach is Regulation E. And Reg E has three aspects to it, but the primary one that they focus in on for uh, Zelle transactions is, was it authorized? In many of these cases, the customer is fooled. You know, they, if you, you know, for whatever's happening with that particular you know, scam, which they have a long list of them here of, of ones that are seen with Zelle. The customer at some point is saying, here's my money, or their MFA has been hijacked to make it look like it is their money. But that's the, the kind of key differentiator that the banks are saying, well, you said that it was authorized. So, you know, you can't come back later and say that it's not authorized. And that's why very few customers are being uh, reimbursed. For me, the big differentiator between this and why it's misunderstood compared to something like a credit card transaction. If you're a credit card merchant, there are certain things you need to go through to, to establish yourself as, as a merchant. And then as you're operating as credit cards, they actually hold back some funds for chargebacks. And if you have a, a high chargeback rate, you know, you're either gonna be subject to higher fees or you'll be kicked out of the network um, altogether. We don't have that same you know, infrastructure mechanism around Zelle. It's made to be like cash. And I know the uh, some scams have hit the Polino household and also people in the neighborhood. And nobody understands that Zelle is like cash. It's not like a credit card. It's not like these other transactions where you can say, hey, I, the services weren't provided, the goods were never delivered, you know, claw this thing back. It's no, the, the money is, is gone. And so I think there's a combination of innovations in the product to help protect consumers, but also 
education uh, for the consumer so they actually understand and know what Zelle is and not just think about it with the lens of some of the other common payment mechanisms that we have in the industry. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Two interesting M&A stories for you this week. I caught up with our business editor, Michael Novenson, for the latest. Excellent to see you, Michael. Growth capital firm Toma Bravo this week announced its intention to acquire Forgerock for $2.3 billion, the third company it has purchased in the identity access management category this year. Does this move come as a surprise to you, Michael? Uh, for me personally, it did come as a surprise. And the reason why is that, as you had indicated, Toma Bravo just two months earlier had bought Ping Identity for $2.8 billion. So what's, what's surprising here is that Ping and Fordrock do very, very similar things. They're both identity and access management providers. They're leaders in customer identity. They do a lot around workforce identity. And they're both very focused on the large enterprises, the biggest and most sophisticated companies with highly customized needs. It's highly unusual to see a private equity firm buy two companies with such overlapping capabilities. And as compared to the acquisition earlier this year, when back in April, Toma Bravo had agreed to buy SailPoint for $6.9 billion, there there was uh, some complementarity that Ping is in IAM, SailPoint's in identity governance, and there's some overlap, but they don't do the exact same thing. So here, this is a little more surprising because the two organizations do nearly identical things. And it does suggest to me that there may be some type of a roll-up or a combination plan here in the works. So how do you think this move will shape the identity space moving forwards? All indications are that we're going to get a third big identity platform provider. From a market share standpoint, Microsoft continues to be the leader with roughly 24% market share. And IAM, this is according to IDC figures from last year. Okta is taking the silver. They have 9% market share. Individually, SailPoint, Ping Identity, and Fordrock were 8th, 9th, and 10th in market share. But you bring them all together, that takes their market share up to a hair north of 6%, which would actually make them the third largest IAM provider in the world behind only Microsoft and Okta. So it does really give them some depth around customer and workforce identity, as well as some breadth doing both the IAM piece as well as the identity governance piece. So it does seem like Toma Bravo is trying to build out an identity platform of its own to compete against not only Microsoft and Okta, but also the likes of Delinea, which was a roll-up of Dicotic and Centrify in the privilege access management space, as well as the one identity and one login combination, which is probably the broadest platform of all since they do IAM, PAM, and IGA. So we're really seeing the build out of these identity platforms, and uh, Toma certainly wants to have a runner in the race as well. Now, another interesting security acquisition this week, something we discussed, which was potentially on the table a few weeks back, Vista Equity Partners have acquired no before. Talk us through how the deal got done. Absolutely. So 23 days ago, there were some regulatory filings that Vista Equity had made a non-binding offer at about $4.22 billion or $24 a share to purchase no before. No before is a security awareness training company. They went public approximately 18 months ago at this point. So what was interesting here is that this take private action of public companies leaving the public market, Toma Bravo had really been the one who was doing this, uh, not only with SailPoint, Ping Identity, and Fordrack, as we talked about, but also going back, they've done it with Proofpoint. Years ago, they did it with Impervo, with Sophos, with Barracuda. And you haven't seen that many other financial investors getting involved here. 
So seeing another player like Vista step up to the plate was interesting. And I wasn't really sure how this was going to play out. I know, similarly, Atoma Bravo had said that they were in talks to buy Dark Trace maybe two months ago. That ultimately, the two sides couldn't come to an agreement that's off the table right now. So I wasn't sure, ultimately, if they could reach a deal. I wasn't sure how No Before felt about this unsolicited offer. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. They had just gone public. But it does seem like uh, with a bump up in the price that this had agreed to bring their offer up from $24 a share to $24.90 a share, about just under a 4% increase in the price that the two sides were able to come to a deal in pretty much all of the major firms who own No Before stocks. So Elephant and KKR. And then Stu Showerman, who's their founder and CEO, they've all agreed to sign on to this deal and, and vote their shares in favor of the deal. So it seems like now it's only a matter of time before this is going to close. And yet another company will leave the public market this time, no before in the hands of this equity. So, Michael, what does this partnership say about where the industry is at right now? It certainly says that there's a lot of popularity for these take private deals. We've had at this point now five, SailPoint, Ping, Fordrock. No, before as well as Tufin, which is a network management firm they got bought by Turner for Capital back in August for $570 million. At the start of the year, you had about roughly 30 companies who were publicly traded, who got a majority of the revenue from security. So we've had five of those leave the public market, about six, and only one company go public, that being Zero Fox. They went public through a special purpose acquisition company or a SPAC. So yeah, definitely seeing some calling of the private markets. That'll probably continue. The other interesting piece here is what Vista's play in cybersecurity is going to look like. So that seems like they're doing a bit of an asset refresh. They had sold 50% of their stake in Infoblocks in 2020. They're cashing out of Ping Identity as that becomes part of Toma Bravo. And they sold SecureLink to Improvada this year as well. But at the same time, they are refreshing. They've made a big investment in Critical Start, which is an MDR firm, more than 200 million. Securonics, which is NextGen Sim, they made a billion dollar investment in this year. And now they're going to spend, yeah, more than four and a half billion to buy no before. So it seems like they're trying to refresh their portfolio with some new technology areas, some companies who they feel are on the cutting edge, whether it's MDR, whether it's SIM or whether it's the security awareness training. It seems like they're trying to find some category leaders in emerging fields and make a security play of their own. Well, interesting times. Michael, it's always great to catch up on what's happening in the business of security. Thank you very much for sharing these M&A updates. Of course. Thank you for the time, Anna. And finally, U.S. President Joe Biden signed an executive order last week setting up a new legal framework for personal data transfers between the EU and the U.S. Lisa Soto, chair of the Global Privacy and Cybersecurity Practice at Hunt and Andrews Kurth, LLP, discussed the latest proposal with our SVP of editorial, Tom Field, and what we are likely to see develop over the next few months. This new agreement, now known as the Transatlantic Data Privacy Framework, is a very significant development, in my view, in the world of EU and UK data transfers to the US. So just to provide a bit of background, uh, about six months ago, a little over six months ago, the presidents of both the US and the European Commission made a joint statement uh, in which they announced an agreement in principle to replace the now invalidated Privacy Shield. Uh, and as you, you will recall, it had been struck down uh, as one of the very few valid data transfer mechanisms by the Court of Justice of the European Union. And the decision is known as the Schrems II decision. Of course, Max Schrems was operative here. And it focused on the lack of protections for EU residents in connection with U.S. 
surveillance programs. And the court also criticized the insufficient redress mechanisms to challenge any unlawful government surveillance. So last Friday, President Biden issued an executive order that outlined safeguards that the U.S. government will put in place to address the alleged shortcomings in intelligence gathering, uh, the safeguards used, and also put in place a robust process for redress. And it even stands up a new and independent court called the Data Protection Review Court, which is, of course, very, very significant. So in response in what was clearly a coordinated approach, uh, the European Commission released a Q&A document and they announced that they intend to now prepare a draft adequacy decision and also launch an adoption procedure. And the European Commission will seek an opinion from the European Data Protection Board and also get approval from a committee of EU member state representatives. And the European Parliament also can review adequacy decisions. So as you said, all of this can take about six months to play out. But the good news is that we are well on our way to having a reinstated transfer mechanism for transfers from the EU and the UK to the US. And this is very welcome news. That's it from the ISMG Security Report. Theme music's by Ithaca Audio. I'm Anna Delaney. Until next time. Music